to Ezekiel chapter 38, a little shift out of the book of Acts this morning, Ezekiel chapter 38. If you're kind of new to the Bible, just go to the halfway point in your Bible. It'll hit you about the book of Psalms and then go right until you find Ezekiel. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, And I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, and splendidly clothed, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer with all of its troops, and the house of Togarma from the far north, and all its troops. Many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. And after many days, you will be visited. In the latter days, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. And they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You shall ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, and all of your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods and who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take away great plunder? Let's pray together. Father, we are in awe of your word. We love the book of Matthew, we love the book of Revelation. We love the book of Hebrews. We love the book of Deuteronomy. We love the book of Ezekiel. Everywhere we turn in this book, it is unbelievable riches of you revealing your thoughts and your intents of your heart, revealing your will to us, forming us and fashioning us, Lord, and and not the least of which is our mind, our thinking, our perspective. And we pray, Lord, as we spend this time this morning in your word, that you would use your word to do all of that. We pray for the Holy Spirit in this room to accomplish it in each of our lives and to meet us where we are this morning. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Like some of you, I watched a bit of the television coverage of the results of England's historic exit from uh, the European Union Thursday evening on the television. And, uh, of course, the night was filled on any channel that you wanted to turn to with this deep kind of analysis of the implications, the surprise at the election results, the implications of the Uh, election results, not only concerning England, not only concerning the EU, but also concerning the United States and indeed the entire world. And at that moment, as I sat on my couch and I was watching this and uh, receiving a text or two on on all of these things and people watching the same thing and and chiming in on it, as as I'm watching this television show, 
in the news account, flipping between a couple of different stations, uh, we were being told that the Asian stock markets were cratering at that very moment, that the United States stock market was poised to drop uh, 750 points when it opened the next, uh, the next morning, and uh, forecasts of all kinds were coming in, and for every kind of measure of hope, for every comment that this might be a good thing in human history, that this might be uh, good for England and all, something that would breed some kind of hope in people, there were ten comments that were uh, of the vein that this was going to be something that was terrible, and comments that were uh, producing fear or despair within the audience concerning all of the uncertainty that what England had now done had introduced into the world. And over and over again on that night, I heard, and perhaps you heard as well, what uh, spoken concerning the world economy and the financial markets of the world, what is always said about those, and that is that the financial markets of the world, there's many things they don't like, but the one thing that those markets don't like the most is uncertainty. They have an especial dislike for uncertainty. And I thought to myself, well, they're not alone. I don't like uncertainty. Nobody really likes uncertainty. I'd like everything to be certain in my life. But so uncertainty is something that's uncomfortable for everyone. Certainly it is for the financial markets of the world. But as I sat on that couch and I watched all of that, all of it reminded me again of how blessed we are as Christians to be able to listen to these things, watch the events of the world unfold, and to be able to process them from a biblical grid, to be able to look at them through the lens of God's Word, to look at them as, as, some, as the world shakes before us so often, whether in you know, large shakes or small shakes, whatever it might be, but to be able to process all of it from a place that is certain, from a foundation that is certain and is sure. And the Word of God is that. Jesus spoke and declared in the context of speaking about prophecy in the end times and the uncertainty of the world in the last days, he said, heaven and earth shall pass away. I mean, there's no stability here. But he said, my word shall never pass away. And I was a product of that in my Christian life, sitting upon that couch, the privilege of being able to process such a gigantic dose of uncertainty being heaped upon the world and to be able to process it from something that is absolutely certain. Now, if I was not able to see all of the things that are, happened on that Thursday night, but if I was not able to process all of the life that is going on around me in this world, what I observed firsthand, what I observed through the news or media or these kind of things, then and watching what's going on in the world geopolitically, what's going on economically, financially, what's going on morally and socially and spiritually. And if I didn't have the privilege of being able to process all of that in the light of God's Word and biblical prophecy, I'd be a mess. I'd be as anxious as the next person. I'd be as great a nervous wreck as anybody else in the world. As opposed to what my experience was as I sat on that couch, and that is to be able to that night and every day to watch the world unfold each day and saying to myself, because of a knowledge of the Word of God, all of this is unfolding exactly as God's Word said it would unfold, as God prophesied would occur. My, our redemption is drawing nigh. Jesus is returning soon. So the same news that would normally produce nothing but anxiety inside of us because if and when we process it in the light of the Word of God, not only does it displace the anxiety, but it even puts an excitement within our heart that it means that Jesus' return is that much closer. Jesus himself said in speaking about the last days or end times, his prophecies concerning that, he said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, 
then look up because your redemption draweth nigh. And because it is so helpful to me in the 36 years that I've been walking with the Lord to be able to process life in the light of the prophetic scriptures, I want every single Christian to know the peace of being able to do the same thing as we watch this world shaking all around us. And so this morning I want to interrupt our study through the book of Acts. It's a natural break that we're in in the book of Acts, so it lends itself well to that and spend three weeks on a kind of mini prophecy update. It's been about five years since we did our last one. Now, ideally this morning, if I had any kind of sense at all, I would begin uh, talking about the biblical prophecy concerning Europe in light of this week's events and the great image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and, and so forth. But we'll wait until next week in order to uh, address those things because this week I want to lay a very important foundation first in talking about Israel and the Middle East that then helps lay a foundation for understanding what we want to talk about next week. It is very, very important for all Christians, but indeed any person in the world, important for everyone to understand and to realize that there is an end times in human history. And it is important to realize in understanding that, that human history is not out of control. Human history is not randomly unfolding on its own on a daily basis. But to realize that God is sovereignly overseeing everything that's unfolding before our eyes. And in his sovereignty, he rules over all, and then he overrules all in order to move human history where it is going to go, and that is to his God-appointed end. And the Lord, the Bible teaches, is not going to allow man's rebellion against him on planet earth to continue. Not only is he not going to allow man's rebellion against one another, to continue on endlessly. That's merely a symptom of the larger problem, man's rebellion against God. And God is not going to allow that to go on infinitely out into the future in human history, but he will bring, he will one day bring it to an end, and he will bring human history, he'll bring that rebellion to an end, and then bring human history to its wonderful conclusion. History really is, as the old saying goes, his story. It's been his story from Genesis chapter 1, the creation of all things, the creation of Adam and Eve, the fall of uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, all the way through until the creation of a new heaven and a new earth where nothing of the fall is moves on into uh, all of that scene. It is his story he is in control of history. Now, what the Bible refers to as the last days or the end times refers to those days on the earth that immediately precede Jesus' return to the world in order to rapture the church, which is then followed by a seven-year period of tribulation in the world, which is then followed by his second coming which then follow, is followed by a thousand-year reign of the millennial reign of Christ, which then follows that is a new, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In Jesus' parable of the ten virgins, Jesus declared concerning the time of his return to rapture the church from what is going to become a hell on earth during the great tribulation period, he said, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. No one knows the day or the hour that Jesus is going to return and rapture the church and bring the church to himself. And it's very frustrating for me as a Christian. You may be mellower about it, but it's very frustrating when periodically 
one of our brethren decides that they have figured out some mathematical formula for determining the day and the hour of Jesus' return. And so they put it out there. The whole world looks at it, ignorant of the fact that this person is doing it in violation of what Jesus has said. And then the day comes and it goes as it always does. And then what happens, and I don't like it because what happens in the eyes of the world, but it can even have kind of a dull impact upon the body of Christ, is it lessens people's enthusiasm for the prophetic part of the Bible. And it makes people look like who believe in the prophecies of the Bible as were some kind of, you know, fringe element, not only in the world, but within the body of Christ. No one is to try and pinpoint that to a day. If they do it, you know they are doing it in violation of Jesus' teaching. But the Bible also teaches that while we cannot know the day or the hour of Jesus' return for us, that we should recognize the times and the seasons that are associated with his return. And we should recognize from those times and seasons that his return is drawing closer. Paul wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. So how can we know that the day is approaching? Paul says we ought to know the times and the seasons. Well, what's he talking about? What is these times and seasons that we ought to know that speak to us of the approaching of Jesus' return to rapture uh, the church? And God has given us extensive insight into all of this through what is known as Bible prophecy. And Bible prophecy is simply history in advance. And because God exists outside of time, it is effortless for him to provide that uh, to us. And so Bible prophecy is history in advance so that as we see the prophetic picture develop before our eyes, that it doesn't scare us like it scares the rest of the world, but it produces this firm kind of uh, peace-producing sense in our hearts that Jesus is returning, and that anchors our hearts and it anchors our minds. And so watching Bible prophecy be fulfilled before our very eyes, it's not given to us Bible prophecy that we read it and we become terrified of what, you know, it is that's going to happen in the world, but it's given in order that God might remind us that he is in control of human history and that Jesus is returning for us soon. Now, when you know the end of a story, Uh, There's an advantage to that. And when you know the end of the story, it allows you to be at peace in the middle of the story while the story is playing out. It's kind of like reading a book. When you already know the end of the story, you know the end of the book, then you don't go through all of the highs and lows that everybody else is going through when they read this book, this mystery drama with all of the twists and turns, the emotional ups, the emotional downs, the mind games, all of the different things. When you know the end of the book, you know the hero survives, you know what happens to her, you know what happens to them, you know what happens in the situation. And and in knowing the end of it, you know all of that is going to happen, and so now you're able to read it in a, with a peace that you wouldn't otherwise possess. I know people within this very church who love to read mysteries, and they love all of that anxiety. They love all of the twists and the turns of the mysteries and, and all of this, and, and yet uh, they don't like it so much that it, it, it's such a, a torment to them to go through all of the roller coaster ride of the book that they read the end of the book first. And then now they can navigate and they will read the book with a completely different emotional health than they otherwise would. They know how it ends. Now, somehow they enjoy the book uh, just as much, you know, with that or just their personality or temperament. They say, I can't take this, you know. So I, I want to know the end 
of the story, and so too in the Bible, on a much more important level, God tells us the end of the story so that we can be at peace while the story is unfolding, because the story can make you very anxious if you don't know the end of the story and how well it turns out for the child of God. And always in the uh, knowing the end of the story, it reminds us that everything is under control and it's under God's control. Well, let's begin this morning by looking at what the Bible has to say about the geopolitical condition of the world uh, as Jesus' return approaches, and especially uh, concerning Israel and the Middle East. It's important to understand the context of this prophecy that the Holy Spirit gives to Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39. The prophet Ezekiel delivered this prophecy 2,600 years ago after Israel had been defeated by the Babylonians and displaced from their land. Very significant to understand. They were as conquered by the Babylonians, the Babylonians gathered all of them up and took them to the Babylonian Empire. And Ezekiel prophesies to this group of people, the Jews, the children of Israel, now when they look back on the land that they've been displaced out of and they're thinking to themselves, we've blown it, we will never be a nation again, we will never occupy that land again. That is all hope for the future return to the land of Israel and being a nation again. It's completely lost, and that's where their hearts were. But in chapters 36 and 37, Ezekiel prophesied that to the children of Israel that one day they would be gathered back into their land, and they would become a nation again. And then in one of the greatest miracles in human history, 2,600 years after the prophecy had been given in Ezekiel, on May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation again, fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecy against all odds, because never before in human history had any race of people or nationality lost their homeland, were without a homeland for 2,600 years, and maintained their racial and national identity without being then absorbed by the nations that surrounded them. And yet, exactly that happened. The preservation of the Jews as a race and as a people for 2,600 years, and then bringing them back into the land. It's jaw-dropping, really. We just get used to Israel, 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 trip to Israel, 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 and we don't realize how long the Jews waited, how long students of prophecy waited, 2,600 years for it to happen. And it's happened in the lifetime of many of us within this room. It's an astonishing fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Amazing. In Ezekiel chapters 40 to the end of the book, we have Ezekiel's description of Israel following Jesus' second coming, and then uh, during uh, all the way through what is known as the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ that is centered uh, in Israel as Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. But in between those groupings is where we find ourselves this morning. In chapters 38 and 39, Ezekiel describes a great military battle or military attack or invasion that's going to be launched against Israel, which clearly aims at Israel's destruction and it will occur between the time of, Jesus, of Israel becoming a nation again, May 14, 1948, and Jesus' second coming. It speaks to the period in, in human history that we find ourselves living in today. The passage reveals to us the whole geopolitical condition of the Middle East 
before this attack aimed at Israel's destruction uh, occurs. And it's described in the first 13 verses of chapter 38, the verses that we just got done reading. Israel's attackers are described in verses 1 through 12. And the Lord addresses specifically the main player in the attack in verse 2, and the Lord addresses a man by the name of Gog. That's not his first name. That's not his last name. It is a title that he possesses, much in the same way we would refer to someone as a president or as a czar or as a pharaoh and so forth. This was a title that was given in the ancient world. He is, we're told in verse 2, the leader of a nation that's referred to by its ancient name, Magog. And Magog is the ancient name for the land north of the Caucasus Mountains. We know that today as Russia. It is further identified within the text in chapter 38, verse 15, again in chapter 39, verse 2, as being to the far north of Israel. Chapter 38, verse 15, then you, God speaks to this uh, Gog and Magog, then you will come from your place out of the far north you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. Chapter 39, verse 2, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. If you take a world map and you lay it out, and you run a line straight north from Israel, you will virtually bisect the city of Moscow. Additionally, we're told in verse 4 that at the time of this invasion, that this nation will not only be to the north of Israel, the far north of Israel, but that it will at that time be a major military power, fabulously armed for war is the description within the passage. And so we recognize that to be true of Russia today. And I think it is very, very important uh, to remember at this point, in trying to understand this passage, to remember Russia's long history of anti-Semitism toward the Jews. Most people are very well versed on Russian anti-Semitism and persecution against the Jews that have uh, historically found themselves, unfortunately, within Russia's borders. All of that is well documented. It is well known. But um, the, her persecution of the Jews goes beyond the Jews that have been caught in her borders historically. It also includes the long history of arming Israel's enemies in the region of the Middle East, arming her enemies that have sought from the beginning of her creation, sought Israel's destruction from her birth in 1948, and the wars in 1967, the war in 1973, when Syria and Jordan and Egypt invaded Israel with the intent of bringing them to annihilation, of driving the Jews into the sea, and they were largely, in fact more than largely, almost exclusively armed by Russia. And to this day, Russia keeps Israel's worst enemies in the Middle East very, very well armed. And in doing so, they keep these enemies of Israel a constant threat to Israel's safety. And God notices that. And why does God notice it? It's because Russia, throughout her history, has been on the wrong side of God's promise to Abraham for a long, long time, and this battle, in my mind, is the payback time. God spoke in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram, and he said to Abram as the father of the Jewish people, and the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And then here it is. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. 
and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the whole world is blessed by the existence of this group of people known as the Jews for many reasons, but one reason supremely is it is through their bloodline that God has supplied the world with a Messiah, Jesus, from that bloodline. Historically, no one, you look down through history at all of the nations and the people that have thought that they could persecute the Jews with impunity, that there would be no price to pay. Every one of them has paid a terrible price for what they've done to the Jews if they've chosen to persecute them. No one has been able throughout history to curse or to persecute the Jews with impunity, and Russia is going to find out one day that God has been watching their treatment of the Jews. It is fascinating to notice in verse 4 that this act of violence, this act of war that Magog unleashes against Israel and this, uh, that, that this attack that they launch is actually a judgment of God against Gog and Magog. It is God who puts his hook in the jaw of Gog and Magog and brings them into this battle, leads them into it, and then leads them into great uh, defeat, which would be consistent with God judging them for their long and current history of anti-Semitism. Well, so far, so good. We've got a major military power to the far north of Israel with a long history of anti-Semitism toward uh, Israel and the arming of Israel's enemies. But then in verses 5 and 6, Magog's allies in this invasion of Israel are also listed with amazing detail. And the first nation that is listed is Persia which is the ancient name for what we know today to be modern-day Iran. And the government of Iran is constantly in the news. I mean, it's just nonstop in the news because it is the main supporter of uh, Islamic terrorists all, all around the world and terrorism even within the Muslim world. And they are there in the news constantly because of its, their push for uh, gaining nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And then also in the news, this is a weekly occurrence. This is something that they're communicating all of the time on the part of the leaders. It does not mean it represents every Persian or every Iranian, even within the country of Iran, any more than our government represents every person in the United States of America. But the Iranian government is speaking all of the time openly, unabashedly, of the destruction of Israel, that this is their goal, this is their desire. Iran's close relationship with Russia is open, and it's very, very well known. Uh, Sometimes you... um, And then you look at the second listing. I'll hold that thought for a little bit later in the sermon. We see in verse 5, another ally is the nation that's referred to as Cush. It may be in your translation they uh, list it as uh, Ethiopia in there, but it's really not Ethiopia. It is what we know today as Sudan, and most specifically what we know today to be northern Sudan. Now, remember, in the year 2011, Sudan experienced a separation. The south section of Sudan ceded itself out of the country of Sudan. The northern section of Sudan is virtually completely Islamic. The southern part of Sudan is Christian and Amonist. And so there was this civil war that was being fought. Uh, the Islamic North was constantly fighting against the South and the atrocities and so forth. 
and a civil war occurred in which two million Sudanese in the course of two to five years died in that civil war. So finally the South seeded itself away, recognized as a separate nation. This Kush is an exact representation of what we know as Sudan or northern Sudan today. Again, 97% Islamic. Put is also listed in verse 5, the ancient word uh, title for what we know today is modern-day Libya, and it is currently, since the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi, it is certain, it, there is no central government there anymore. It is a, it is a complete war zone within the nation, and, uh, and control of the country is now uh, in the hands of competing Islamic uh, malicious, but nothing but an Islamic something is going to ep- end up ruling in Libya. In verse 6, it talks about Gomer and Torgarma joining in this invasion. These are ancient names for what we know today uh, to be Turkey. And Turkey is a Muslim nation with a secular government, which in recent years has dramatically strengthened its ties away from the West and toward Iran and toward uh, Russia, while openly uh, doing whatever it can to kind of show its Islamic credentials to provocate the nation of Israel. One of the interesting things about Russia here and all of Russia's, well, Russia is interesting in its own right, but all of the allies of Russia here and Magog in this attack is that they're all united by one thing, and what they're united by is the religion of Islam. And they're united together in their hostility toward Israel. And ultimately, whatever small little pieces move between now and the onset of this battle, ultimately things will happen diplomatically between these countries and so forth that each of them will be happy to unite together in an attempt at the destruction of the nation of Israel. And so you look at it. It's a fascinating thing for me to watch, and I'm just one person who watches the news just like you do, and we all form our own opinions. But Russia and the Islamic world, they are the bullies of the world right now. Russia is just a… They just take over whatever they want to take over. They do whatever they want to do, and everybody wrings their hands and is afraid to start some kind of a fight. And they're doing whatever they want to do. And the same thing with Iran. Iran doesn't care what anybody else thinks. The Islamic world is very, very, especially the, uh, the uh, radical Islamic side of the religion there, Uh, they have victory after victory after victory after victory, and all that it does is it just simply emboldens them. And you have to remember that Islam has an end-time scenario of its own. They believe that their 12th imam is going to come back and that they're going to conquer the world and so forth. This is not secular for them. This is religion. This is at the core of their being. And so when they see nobody stopping them doing what they're doing, they come to the conclusion that their God is blessing them in what they're doing. And ultimately, Israel knows about, Israel knows, as the old saying goes, it's a tough neighborhood, the Middle East. And the only thing that's respected is strength, and they've learned that the hard way. And so that's why when you want to punch Israel in the nose, they're going to punch you twice in the nose. Otherwise, you don't survive in that neighborhood. Some of you may live in such a neighborhood don't do it, you're a Christian. But anyway, this is, this is a tough territory on things. But it's interesting to watch how nobody is pushing these folks back. And it's very easy to see on the short term in terms of this scenario that they get, continue to just get so full of themselves that they'll just go ahead and launch into this because arrogance just becomes more and more arrogant until it's humbled. And there's tremendous arrogance behind what it is that they are are planning to do here uh, to Israel. Now, almost 
is interesting in Ezekiel's prophecy are the nations that are uh, conspicuously absent in joining this particular invasion. There are nations that you would look and say, well, they would jump on the bandwagon to invade and destroy Israel, and yet they're not mentioned as, uh, as doing that. And uh, they sit on the sidelines. Sheba and Dedan are mentioned there in verse 13. It's a reference to modern-day uh, Saudi Arabia. They don't attack Israel in this particular uh, attack when it occurs. They don't like the development. Their rebuke is a verbal one, but, but they're not going to uh, jump in and join the attack, nor are they going to jump in to defend Israel, of course. And that would be their reaction if this battle took place today, because Saudi Arabia, though they are Muslim, they fear even more than Israel at this point the empowerment of Iran as the, the, the you know, strength, the power broker within the Middle East in the Islamic uh, world, and they view them as the greater threat. There's also the mention of the merchants of Tarshish uh, who sit this out, and Tarshish refers to the descendants of Javan, who is a man who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, who settled in Greece, and so perhaps it's a reference to Europe and Europeans. Their protest against this invasion, they will protest verbally, but they will not protest militarily. Interesting to notice, there is no mention of Egypt here, a historic enemy of Israel. Egypt has a peace treaty with Israel today, which they are honoring today. Jordan is not mentioned, long an enemy of Israel. But Jordan, in recent decades, has, uh, had, has uh, conciliatory uh, relationship with Israel, also a peace treaty uh, with Israel. Oddly, Syria doesn't get involved in the attack. And prior to Syria's civil war, you would have thought they would have led the attack. Um, Assad hates Israel. Uh, Syria is a, a birthing ground, a launching pad for terrorist attacks against Israel historically. But we know because of the civil war that's going on in Syria, well, we know they don't join this attack. It may be because their hands are full with their own uh, civil war that they find themselves in at the moment. And maybe as a result of the civil war, Assad, uh, President Assad there gets overthrown and he's replaced by something more moderate. I don't see it because he's being supported by the Russians and also by the Iranians. They don't want moderation in that part of, of the world. It might be that because uh, he is holding on to his rule because of Russian and Iranian help, that he will defeat his opposition in this civil war uh, in Syria, but then he'll be too weak politically after it. The nation will be too weak in the aftermath of it to join the invasion. Or perhaps the civil war ends, and now he's beholden to uh, Iran. Iran has supplied him with weapons, supplied him with soldiers, supplied him with uh, all kinds of things in order to survive the threat to his reign in this civil war. And then there will come a comeuppance. You've got to pay us for what it is that we've done for you. And Iran could easily uh, force Syria to bring some kind of an attack, a terrorist attack against Israel. Uh, Hezbollah, who is supported by a terrorist group, supported by Iran, uh, controls the country of Lebanon, but they do that at Syria's pleasure. But Iran could pull the strings and say, we want you to attack and harass Israel. Israel could look at it and say, we're not going to put up with this kind of stuff and blow them into the uh, Stone Age, after which they'd have no stomach for war. We don't know what, what's going to happen. You can conjecture as, as much as, as us. But as you watch, as I do, as we watch the events unfold, just to simply know about Syria, they don't join this invasion. Neither does Iraq, interestingly enough. And of course, Iraq has uh, got enough on their table with maintaining the security and uh, the prosperity and advancement of their own uh, country. 
at the moment, rebuilding it, and currently Iraq is working very, very hard to shake itself free from Iranian influence. It does not want to be in the orbit of Iran, and so all of that's consistent with the geopolitical condition of Uh, of that country. And as we sit here this morning, that prophecy of Ezekiel that that he describes here in, in chapters 38 and 39, it describes the very geopolitical condition of the Middle Eastern world today to a T. The rebirth of the nation of Israel complete with the exact alignment of nations surrounding her as prophesied and described by Ezekiel. This has never happened before in human history, and yet it's our daily reality. We wake up to that scenario that was described 2,600 years ago. We wake up to that reality every single day as Americans, and so does everything, every single citizen within the world. And it is an amazing thing to know and to understand. And here's the point. Some of you said, oh, good, there was a point. Some of you love this, and I know some of you are like, please. As surely as Ezekiel's prophecy concerning the birth of the nation of Israel came to pass in chapters 36 and 37. This battle is going to come to pass as well before Jesus' second coming. Now, notice very briefly the description of the battle as it's described there beginning in verse 7 of chapter 38 and heading well into chapter 39. You notice that what uh, they do in this attack in chapter 38, verses 7 through 12, they'll attack Israel, now restored to the land like a storm. They will attack them with overwhelming force. Their evil plan, it's described as an evil plan. In other words, it will be a surprise attack upon Israel. They will think they're largely at peace with their uh, nations around them, and it will look like a piece of cake. We're just going to go in. We've got all of these nations, all this wealth, all this military. We will wipe them out. And it appears that Israel, because they're living in peace at this moment, that they do not provoke this attack. The provocation does not come from Israel. It is God who puts the hook into the jaws of Magog. It's described as an evil plan in the heart of Russia. When they do this, God gets really, really upset. And you don't want to go to war with God ever, and you don't want to go to war with him when he's really upset. This bothers him a lot. Sometimes we look at God and In our American culture, he's like our servant. Church here is all about us, and he just happens to be an attachment. You know, I mean, and and, or he's the Pillsbury Doughboy. You know, you poke him in the stomach, and he giggles, and he's harmless enough. You know, God's a mighty warrior. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God, not on on any issue, let alone this battle. And something about this really, really makes him mad, and it taps into his righteous anger. And, and when it looks like nobody else in the whole world will stand with Israel under the weight of this attack, God does. And these, again, these invading armies are very simply on the wrong side of God's promise to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And God intervenes in the battle. He brings a great earthquake, verses 19 and 20. This disorients the entire army. This looks like you got your battle plan, and then maybe if this happens and this happens, but nobody really plans for an earthquake like the one that God's got planned for this battle. And God begins to defeat this invading army with natural forces. They begin, verse 21, the invading armies, they begin to fight amongst one another, uh, and mutiny begins to occur. Their whole authority structure begins to unravel. The coalition begins to unravel as it's put to this supernatural test that God brings against them, and uh, this earthquake creates such a panic. They begin to fight with one another. There's pestilence and bloodshed, we're told, in verse 22, in verse 22 as well. 
is well, a flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, brimstone. God unleashes all of this stuff. And then we're told in verse 23 that God will magnify and sanctify himself among the nations of the world through the destruction of this impressive army. And so this military campaign, it was supposed to be so easy, a piece of cake, and it just turns into this immense defeat. And Gog's armies are destroyed. We're told in chapter 39, uh, verse 2, the weapons are knocked out of her hands. Her invading army, verses 4 and 5, is slaughtered. God then sends fire on Magog and on those who live securely in the coastlands. The coastlands refer to the farthest reaches of the world. And what it appears to be is that God then not only judges the uh, armies that are a part of this invading force, but he then judges the nations that sent the armies. And so sometimes you can send an army out of Russia, out of Iran, so forth. They invade Israel. The nation of Israel itself bears the brunt of all of the damage and so forth. And then it's like you defeat the army, but then it looks like the nations who were behind all of it, they get off scot-free. Sorry, Scots. But uh, nothing comes, you know, to them at all on it. And what God does is he not only judges the armies, but it appears that he then judges the nations that, and the cities and the lands of these invading nations. And then in verse 7 in chapter 39, we're told that all of this is a demonstration of God's existence and, and, his, and power, and it's a witness to the nation of Israel, and it's a witness to the whole world. And then I love it in verse 8. Let me read it to you again if you just look at chapter 39, verse 8. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. All of this is going to happen. I personally believe that this attack takes place immediately after the rapture of the church. You don't have to hold that view it just happens to be my view. And I, but I hold that view based upon the lack of a United States response to this invasion. There's no mention of the United States responding in any way as an ally to Israel. And I, I uh, hold the view in the light of Russia's boldness in launching this attack. I think that the United States of America is definitely post-Christian. It is absolutely that. But of most of the, the nations in the world, and certainly the world power, the, the powers of the world, that the rapture would leave the United States of America in some chaos as a result of the removal of the church, and it would certainly remove from the United States the, the most pro-Israel group within the United States next to Jews uh, themselves. And so possibly the rapture forces the United States to kind of regroup in light of the loss of so many uh, Americans who are Christians, uh, or they turn isolationist as a result of it, because outside of the Christians, there's no real love for the nation of Israel. And then this military defeat of Russia and the Middle Eastern powers is one possible scenario that then allows the Antichrist to arise and then lead a unified Europe into becoming the final world-ruling empire in human history as the Bible prophesies, which is what we talk about next week. It's the scenario that makes sense to me as I try to put all of it together. Now let me close here with just a lesson or two, very briefly. Things that we to know as we watch so many remarkable events unfolding before our eyes today. The existence of the nation of Israel today is the fulfillment of prophecy. It was not the United Nations. It was not Israel. It was not anybody else. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. It is a miracle of God. It is his doing, and it is God's evidence to us of the fact that he is in charge of things, and that man is not in charge of things. And when you watch what's going on in the Middle East, and remember, the only reason that when, when the uh, Brexit came onto the news, 
uh, and, and became the focus of the news on Thursday and beyond, uh, it took something of that magnitude to move the Middle East and ISIL and ISIS and all of these things, to move the Middle East off of the front pages and the lead stories of all news organizations in, in the United States and in the world. It is a hotbed. It's something that we're watching. People are watching. And so when you see the Middle East, you see the chaos of it, the tragedy of, of all of it, realize that Israel will never cease to exist as a nation. Never bet against Israel. Don't do it. They will never be driven out of the, out of the land. They'll be never be driven into the sea. Don't worry about Israel. Pray for Israel, but you don't need to worry about them. It doesn't matter if 1.3 billion Muslims try to drive them into the sea or the whole world population tries to drive them into the sea. God will not allow that to happen because it would defy his word. The second thing to realize here is geopolitically to just be confronted in a wonderful way that geopolitically the world today is exactly as Ezekiel prophesied 2,600 years ago in describing the latter days, uh, the days that are approaching Jesus' return for the church, and it's just amazing, just amazing to see what we've seen here this morning, to look at the world around us and see such an incredible match. And so as you watch all of the drama of the Middle East and the danger and, and the tragedy of it, you just need to know as you watch it with the same peace that those of us who know something about Bible prophecy watch it with, the grid that we process everything through to know that it is not out of control, it's not out of God's control. One day he will overrule all of it and, it's all, and he's going to bring all of it to his end. Now, for those of us who are Christians in this room, when you know the end of the story ahead of time, and we do, you can relax while all of it's unfolding, especially when you know it is your heavenly Father who is sovereignly unfolding this story. History, prophecy is simply history in advance. And when God gives prophecy, he gives history in advance. And his prophecy is just as sure as history that is in the past. This prophecy that we read about tonight is going to happen as surely as anything you want to read in the history book that's happened in the past has happened in the past. But knowing history in advance, as we do as Christians, is very, very handy. Very, very uh, handy thing to have. When I was a kid, and you're probably like this, you sometimes dream about um, knowing the future in advance. And you know, so, wow, if I could know the future in advance, what would I want to know? I'd want to know who's going to win the world series. That's a kind of a kid thing with knowing the future in advance. Then you become an adult. You become a little more mature, a little more sophisticated, and the potential of knowing history in advance immediately comes to mind. Maybe knowing those lottery numbers where I'd win the $72 billion or whatever. We become a little self-focused, and we want, you know, knowing the future to be a little more productive for us, you know, in, in terms of how we would come ahead. But I'll tell you, far better and far more valuable is to know human history in advance in order that we might, in knowing how it all ends, be at peace while all of it is unfolding which is what God wants for each of us his ch as his children, as Jesus declared of his prophetic revelation concerning the future and the final history of mankind. Heaven and earth is going to pass away. It is going to pass away. But there's something surer than heaven and earth in this world. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. 
and then remembering in the middle of all that is going on around us in the world, as Jesus said, when you even begin to see these things come to pass, look up. What it means to you is not hand-wringing or analysis. What it means to you supremely is that your redemption draws nigh, that Jesus Christ is returning soon. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it's time to get saved and it's time to get on God's side in human history and God's side of eternity. Because the same God who has declared all of this prophecy that is fulfilled and is yet future and so forth, he also declares concerning your salvation. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Don't bet against God. Don't bet against his power. Don't bet against his love and his wisdom. Become a part of his family today. To bet against his truth and his offer of salvation and the necessity of salvation found in faith through his Son will lead to a disappointment that is even greater than the battle that is described in what we have studied here today. If you've never given your life to Christ and you want to do that this morning, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to do so. Let's stand together and we'll pray now and dismiss. Father, the world is it's a scary place. Humanly speaking, it is very, very uncertain. And we thank you that you have told us the story in advance, that we might be able to walk in a peace that we would never otherwise know, apart from knowing the end of the story and seeing it be fulfilled down through the ages. And then more than the peace, Lord, that would anchor our hearts, to then be able to look up and to know that all of it means that our redemption draws nigh. And with the Spirit, Lord, as the bride of Christ, as you record in your revelation, we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And in the meantime, keep us peaceful and busy about your work and your kingdom as we await your return. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel.